This is a Federal News Network podcast. One arm of the government's intellectual property protection machinery has a new position and a new person to fill it. The U.S. Copyright Office, a congressional branch agency, has appointed its first chief economist. Here to explain the connection between copyrights and economics is that economist himself, Dr. Brent Lutz. Dr. Lutz, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. I'm happy to be here. And what is an economist doing at the Copyright Office? So having an economist at the Copyright Office makes a lot of sense from several perspectives. Probably the most obvious of which is the outsized role that the copyright system plays in our economy. If you sit back and think about it, the number of industries that are existentially reliant on the copyright system is really staggering. We all think about copyrights as protecting creators. They absolutely do that. But that's really only the first line of their effects. Yes. I mean, you think of it as somebody that writes a book or a book of poetry and they get a copyright on it or they write a song. And then, you know, a few years later after the copyright expires, then they can sell it to Warner Brothers for $10 trillion. But how about in the <laughs> corporate world and in the real economy producing world? How do the copyrights sure. play in there? The purpose of the copyright is to incentivize the creation of works. And it's those works that feed all of the downstream industries. Take music, for example. We have copyrights to protect songwriters and performers, recording artists. Without those copyrights, those creators wouldn't be incentivized to create those works in the first place. And without those works, we're not going to have any streaming platforms. We're not going to have downloading platforms. We're not going to have live musical events or music and movies or music and advertising. And it's not just for music. The same thing exists in movies and literature and software and video games, even textiles. All of these downstream industries are existentially reliant on the creation of the works in the first place. And the creation of those works is incentivized by the copyright system. So I've seen studies that put all the annual revenues from the industries that are existentially reliant on the copyright system at between $1.2 and $2.5 trillion a year. And to put that into context, that's about 6 to 12% of the U.S. GDP. And if you're thinking about it in that context, when you have a singular system upon which about 10% of the U.S. economy is reliant on, it's probably a good idea to have an economist involved with that system. All right. And when um, you were appointed by Shira Perlmutter, who is the current Register of Copyrights, what did she tell you that she would hope for in having an economist as it relates to policies and so forth, and operation even, according to her statement, with respect to having an economist on board? Register Perlmutter has really given me a lot of leeway to help shape what this position is going to be. You touched on a couple aspects. There's going to be an internal component and an external component. The internal component will be understanding how policy decisions and operational decisions affect access to and benefits from our copyright system. Then we'll have an external component where a large part of my job will be establishing a research agenda, not just for myself, for the copyright office, but hopefully for the academic community to answer the questions that we really care about from a policy perspective. We're speaking with Dr. Brent Lutz. He is the first chief economist of the U.S. Copyright Office. And what are some of the top-of-mind questions that economics research could maybe answer, or at least point to? I can tell you about some of the work we're already involved with. Professor uh, Joel Waldfolk has been involved with the Copyright Office for a number of months now, and they've engaged him to, among other things, look at gender disparities in access to and benefits from the copyright system. 
By the way, we're going to be releasing a report on his findings in the next few weeks. Building on that, I'll be working with Joel to further that research and drill down and try to figure out why these gender disparities exist in certain areas and not in other areas, and to further that into looking at racial and ethnic disparities as they relate to the access to the copyright system. That's an interesting question, access, because anybody can go to the copyright office. It's really easy to get a copyright, for that matter, to get a trademark. I mean, the process is easy. There's some examination that goes on, but it's hard to picture how access might be an issue for any group or individual. It's a question uh, that we can answer empirically. So back it up a little bit. If we see disparities in the usage of the system, then you need to ask the question, is that because of access or is that because of something else? And, you know, you could think of maybe it's not access in that anybody is necessarily prevented from getting into the system or from using the system, but there may be certain groups that aren't as aware of how to access the system or the benefits of accessing the system. Sure. And do you think that perhaps in the age of TikTok and before that YouTube and all of these things, people just do something, even write a song, create a piece of intellectual property, stick it on there because they get likes in the thousands or ten thousands or millions and maybe don't give thought to the fact that, hey, this could be copyrighted. Maybe it's an age and cultural thing, not so much racial or gender, but people just reared in the YouTube and TikTok age. That really speaks to the heart of the role of economics and copyright, which is the incentive to create works in the first place. And traditionally, we think the incentives to creating work are, are financial, right? That's why we have a copyright system to give creators a monopoly over their work and to be able to sell it. But it's an interesting question that you raise. Are there other incentives? In, there likely are, but you know, what are those other incentives that aren't financial that encourage people to create works? And you know, that may be likes, that may be notoriety, it may be legacy. There's a number of different things. And that's an important question from a policy perspective because the core policy objective of copyright, again, is to incentivize the creation and distribution of works. Ultimately, they'll all learn the best incentive is good old cash on the barrel head, perhaps, but maybe that's <laughs> a matter of age. And just tell us about yourself. What is your background, and how did you come to end up at the Copyright Office? As you may guess, I'm an economist. I'm a, in particular, I'm a, an empirical microeconomist. I became interested in economics before I really knew that it was a discipline of study or, or what it was. Now, I was a soldier in the Army stationed in Iraq shortly after our, our initial invasion of the country. And it was, it was really in shambles at that time. And I found it just absolutely fascinating to see how people reacted to incentives and how all those incentives quickly coalesced into the informal markets, which then formed more formal markets and essentially the quick establishment of the economy. And, you know, as a 20-year-old soldier, I didn't have the words to articulate those ideas. But the ideas themselves were very interesting to me. And fast forward a few years later, in college and by happenstance, take an economics class because I think the class I really wanted was filled up. <laughs> and so I took the class and it dawned on me that this was a study of those ideas that really captured me. And within a week, I think I changed my major, enjoyed it so much, I went through and got a PhD. And in my PhD studies, I was particularly interested in sort of the relationship between economic and governance, and particularly regulatory and legislative governance. And now those studies are particularly relevant to my work. But directly after finishing my PhD program, 
I decided to take the private sector route and went into economic consulting. I worked for a company called the Brattle Group, which is a top economic consultancy. And there I did mainly litigation and regulatory consulting in the context of intellectual property. So mostly patents and copyrights, occasionally trade seekers and trademarks. And I found that work incredibly interesting. Mainly what I would do is figure out the market value of individual pieces of intellectual property or figure out kind of what the optimal or socially optimal royalty rate might be for some sort of statutory licensing program. And it was incredibly exciting, interesting work. I mean, to have hundreds of billions of dollars hinge on the outcome of my economic analysis was very gratifying and sometimes scary. But doing that, I wasn't really in the market for a new job. I very much enjoyed that work. But then, again, by happenstance, the job posting for this position sort of came by my desk. And I looked at it, and I sort of realized the gravity of what they're asking for and realized that that was the perfect job for me. And, you know, this breadth of experience that I had, not just dealing with academic issues, but also dealing with industry stakeholders and dealing with the legal infrastructure around intellectual property gave me the perfect background to be successful in this role and really shape it into what it needs to be. All right. So you've gone from soldier pay to private consulting economics pay. Now you're back closer to soldier pay. Uh, A little bit better than soldier pay, but still a bit of a roller coaster. All right. Dr. Brent Lutz is the first chief economist at the U.S. Copyright Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.